Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I am Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the podcast Film Seizure, that you can catch at filmseizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. This week, I'm going to talk about a sort of forgotten sequel to one of the greatest achievements of filmmaking of the early days of cinema, as well as one of the greatest monster movies ever. And that sequel is Son of Kong. Upon its March 2nd, 1933 release, King Kong was an immediate hit and phenomenon. It's highly thought of to this day. The drama, the thrills, and the artistry around the film and the stop-motion animation by Willis O'Brien are kind of this perfect meld of total entertainment across many different sensibilities and tastes of audiences. And I mean it. There's a love story in the movie. There is action and adventure, especially on Skull Island. Um, there's a horror element to the movie. You know, while I don't necessarily consider King Kong a horror movie as much as I do an action fantasy, it should be taken into consideration that Rotten Tomatoes lists King Kong as the greatest horror film ever made. But consider this for a second. King Kong was a massive success for RKO Pictures. It was a movie that inspired a whole genre of giant monsters, even stretching out over to Japan to inspire Toho Studios to make Godzilla, which in turn inspired a ton of other giant monster films. There's an entire franchise that still, nearly 90 years later, is still going strong with a different take of a similar idea for 1949's Mighty Joe Young, two films in the 60s produced by the aforementioned Toho that found Kong going up against Godzilla, and then a mechanical duplicate of him named Mechanicong, a 1970s remake that I don't think I need to express yet again how much I dearly love, a crappy sequel to that 70s remake, the Peter Jackson remake in 2005, the legendary studios Kong Skull Island, its sequel Godzilla vs. Kong, and an announced sequel to that film. There are also a ton of pop culture references from TV shows to other movies to parodies uh, to mentions within songs. Yet, King Kong, a movie that was beloved at the time and still stands the test of time, was nominated for no awards. There was no Oscar for this film. There was no special achievement award given to directors and producers Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shudsack, uh, or to Willis O'Brien. Sure, plenty of other cultural touchstone films also didn't get recognized throughout the decades, but none of them are quite as significant as King Kong. But we're not here to talk about the original film. We're here to talk about the sort of forgotten sequel, Son of Kong. Now, I'll give it to you straight that this is uh, sort of forgotten because it wasn't quite received as well as the original. It's not really the same type of movie. Most importantly, there were a little bit of cost-cutting measures put into place and a really sad and terrible behind-the-scenes story to bring up as well. So, get this. It's March of 1933. RKO sees that King Kong is a phenomenon, is performing well. So what do you do? You greenlight a sequel post-haste. But there are limitations to you know set to the you know to the production by RKO. First of all, this is only Ernest Shodzak, no Marion C. Cooper, who had the background in nature films and really set the stage for the adventure part of discovering Kong. The movie also had to be released in December, 
1933. Yeah, you got to turn this thing around in nine and a half short months. That means scripting, sets, casting, and most importantly, special effects had to be rushed. The stop motion done by O'Brien was tedious and difficult and a long process for the original King Kong. In the 2000s, Peter Jackson's special effects team, who worked on the 2005 King Kong, attempted to use O'Brien's same techniques and marveled at how he could have completed anything in less than months or years. But then, once you completed the stop motion animation for the son of Kong named Kiko, at least that's the name that they applied to it later, you have to put the two pieces of film together to have the creature interact with people. That's a tall order. But maybe the most egregious thing is that King Kong was made on a budget of somewhere around $675,000. That was pretty hefty in 1933, but the movie made somewhere around 10 times that. Son of Kong's budget was less than half the original, coming in at around $270,000. You have to remember that sequels were not treated like they are today. Sequels were often cheaper and much more cash-grabby. There were series, sure. Plenty of movies had a continuation of a character. But straight-up sequels were not really common until... um, the late 70s and into the 80s. I would say that Jaws was really the first... Uh, movie to really kind of have an expectation for sequels to come out of it but even then it wasn't until the last 10 or 15 years that studios would approve significantly larger budgets for sequels all i'm saying is somehow this movie got made and still turned a profit though a pretty meager one What's more is that there is a terrible incident that occurred behind the scenes. Willis O'Brien doesn't like talking about this movie. First of all, he calls the sequel cheesy and he was hurried to complete the film and had a much smaller budget. But he ended up handing the animation work over to his assistant, Buzz Gibson. O'Brien didn't want credit on the film, but he did come in and check on the production each day. O'Brien had two sons with an estranged wife. There was Willis Jr. and William. He was very close to his sons. Uh, A few weeks after he brought his sons to the set to see the monsters being created, his wife, Hazel Ruth Collette, shot and killed his children before turning the gun on herself. And what's worse is that her suicide attempt failed, but also spectacularly failed, as she did uh, seemingly suffer from tuberculosis and by shooting herself in the chest it drained the lung infected and actually extended her life she did remain in the hospital at los angeles general hospital in the prison ward until she did eventually die in 1934 but this nearly destroyed o'brien there was a publicity photo taken around the time his ex-wife killed his sons that just showed the complete anguish on his face While he married his new girlfriend later that year in 1933 and stayed with her for the rest of his life, he never really liked talking about Son of Kong because of what occurred to his family. It's a dark chapter of the making of this movie and in some ways maybe puts a cloud over the whole thing. But let's back up real quick before we talk about the actual events of the movie. The movie did get completed. It did get released on December 22nd, 1933 but it didn't perform that well. It was only about 70 minutes. It's almost a B-movie at that length. 
It's much lighter in tone due to screenwriter Ruth Rose intentionally having no interest in making a serious picture. She said that she couldn't make it bigger, so she made it funnier. The only returning main star of the primary trio of the original movie was Robert Armstrong playing Carl Denham. Like I said, the movie returned a meager profit of about twice its production budget. And critics were kind of disinterested in the film, though later reevaluation have some people finding some interest or something to at least appreciate from the movie. But at this point, let's transition into the goings-on in Son of Kong. In the aftermath of the disaster that was uh, done in New York with King Kong being brought there and eventually destroying a big chunk of the city, Carl Denham is in near ruin. Uh, He's facing harassment from reporters who want a story about the man who brought Kong over. And lawsuits from the city and other businesses are pretty much weighing him down. I mean, he is sorry for the trouble, and he does wish that he had left Kong on his island, but that doesn't change the fact that he is directly responsible for what happened. He gets a message from Captain Inglehorn, who took him to Kong's island in the first movie. He agrees to go see the captain on the ship. Uh, But before the captain can tell him why he wanted to see Denim, a friendly process server who helped Denim get to the ship tells him that Denim's going to be indicted. And that's exactly what Inglehorn wants to talk to Denim about. He's also in just as much trouble as Denim is for transporting Kong to the States. Uh, He wants to skip town and go to a secluded part of the world, in particular the Indian Ocean. Denim agrees to leave. Ultimately, they both end up becoming fugitives. Now, they end up in Dekang. Then, Inglehorn knows uh, they happen to be somewhere around 1,750 miles from where Kong was found. And while in port, Inglehorn and Denim go to a show that features a bunch of small monkeys playing instruments, uh, which is kind of cute because this is a different type of monkey show than what Denim usually put on. But after this show, uh, the show's owner uh, introduces his comely daughter, Hilda, to take the stage to sing a song. And Denim spots the girl's personality and thinks that she could be a star, even if she doesn't have much of a singing voice. And he's also quite attracted to her, which is kind of interesting because Denim is kind of a stand-in for Marion C. Cooper. And in the original film, uh, he kind of states some of Cooper's frustration of always being asked to put romance into movies. Uh, he was not very, uh, he was not a very romantic filmmaker. So to have that guy stand in eventually have a love interest in the sequel is is kind of peculiar but after the show hilda's father mr peterson gets drunk with a norwegian ship captain and they get into a drunken argument that turns violent the norwegian knocks peterson over which catches the tent on fire the norwegian flees and hilda wakes up realizing that the whole place is up in flames she frees the little monkeys and tries to save her father but he's already dying from the head wound that he suffered uh from the blow that he took from the norwegian that uh, ultimately knocked him back and caused him to uh tip over a, a flame that set the whole place on fire now hilda knows the norwegian is to blame for her father's death and she plans to have the authorities arrest him but as it turns out 
This captain was the very person who Denim got the map to Kong from. He then asks if he could get a ride on Denim and Ingle, Inglehorn's boat. And they don't really want to do this. However, this captain then uh, starts talking of a treasure on the island that he had never told Denim about before. So he convinces Denim and Inglehorn to return to Skull Island. And before shipping out, he stops by to see uh, Denim stop, stops by to see Hilda. She would like to go with him. But despite her begging, Denim stands his ground and leaves without her. Now on the boat, on this trip, the Norwegian starts getting rather chummy with Inglehorn's crew. He tells the crew how many people were killed on the last time Inglehorn and Denim uh, went out this way. And that if he was the captain, he'd never sail his crew into this kind of danger. And when you think the crew might mutiny, they reveal that they have actually found Hilda, who stowed away on the boat. She's happy to be there with Denim. She's not so happy about seeing the Norwegian. Things get a little hairier when they near Skull Island. Inglehorn's crew has agreed to mutiny with the Norwegian. They're going to put Denim, Hilda, and Inglehorn on the lifeboat and basically send them off and strand them. And that's when Hilda reveals the Norwegian killed her father. And the betrayed uh, trio is soon joined by Chinese cook Charlie. And the Norwegian tries to become the new captain of the ship, but the crew isn't having any kind of captain. So he gets tossed over the side as well and joins the other four. The quintet now row to Skull Island where they receive a pretty cold welcome from the chief of the natives who is pissed that Kong was let inside the tall gates that they erected and killed some of the locals. And it doesn't take too long after finding a new place to land that they find a little baby Kong trapped in quicksand and struggling. The baby Kong, interestingly, is an albino, and that's probably to try to set him to look a little bit different than King Kong did in the previous film, if I had to guess. But Hilda feels sorry for the trapped baby, and Denim says that he feels bad for him too, but for a completely different reason. Denim helps Baby Kong out of the quicksand, and he carries on as normal. Meanwhile, things get a little troubling for the, the shipwrecked outsiders here. Uh, a Styracosaurus and a giant bear attack two different groups of the travelers, and when Baby Kong hears Hilda scream when she and Denim are trapped by the bear, he comes to the rescue. And while he's not as big as the bear, Baby Kong is pretty good at punching and biting. Um, after the fight, Denim even bandages a cut on Baby Kong's finger and continues to make friends with the monkey. In fact, where Denim expects to find the treasure of the, the Norwegian spoke about, Baby Kong even helps bust down the door to let him and Hilda in, where they do find a necklace that is made of giant diamonds. When the Norwegian sees Baby Kong, he runs away to leave in their boat. However... He's eaten by an aquatic dinosaur. An earthquake and tsunami hits the island and creates a lot of havoc. And as the temple with the treasure floods, Baby Kong helps Denim get to higher ground. The entire island sinks, and when Baby Kong's foot gets stuck on the top of the mound that is slowly sinking into the ocean, he sacrifices himself to keep Denim out of the water, and he sinks and dies with the rest of the island. Denim... Inglehorn, Hilda, and Charlie are saved by a passing rescue ship. 
So let's talk about the three things I like about Son of Kong. First up, I really do like that there are consequences to Carl Denham's actions in the first movie. He's regretful over his hubris that he had Kong under control. He knows that he's at least fairly responsible for all that happened. Okay, yes, some of his apologetic attitude does stem from the financial ruin, but there does seem to be a desire to make up for what he had done, at least to Kong himself, if even if not to New York City or some of the people whose lives were ruined by Kong. It's not exactly common to see movies deal with fallout of realistically bad things. Like, never once do we ever see Charles Bronson having to deal with the fallout of all the people he killed in the Death Wish movies. In that world, he killed the bad guy so he gets off scot-free. Here, Carl Denham is up to his eyeballs in lawsuits and, a, and soon a criminal indictment. Second, I kind of like the cast of down-on-their-luck characters. While, yes, Fay Rays and Darrow was broke, hungry, and implied that she was uh, homeless, this is slightly different. As already discussed, Denim is on the run to keep from being completely busted and in jail. But Hilda is a really pretty sad story, too. Uh, she was a dancer, but she ended up uh, staying with her father and worked his little, likely unsuccessful show. And it's because he was a drunk. Uh, she was kind of stuck with him in order to care for him. Uh, but it's kind of a sad life. You know, now she has absolutely nothing. The monkeys are, uh, that she liked are now freed or they all ran away. Uh, she's just, and of course her father's dead, which of course that's, you know, bad enough as it is, but she's a very sympathetic character, um, in, in a different way than Anne was in the previous movie. And you, you just kind of have this nice soft spot for her. And it makes her likable. Uh, it makes her also uh, just somebody that, that you kind of root for as well. Third, you have to like Baby Kong. Sure, we don't get nearly as much time in this very brief sequel that we get with, uh, with his Big Papa King Kong. But that said, he's cute and friendly. And you seem to kind of almost... It seems like he wants to cuddle up with Denim and Hilda just as much as we might want to cuddle up with him. Um, you know, he has an innocence to him. He's still tough enough to kill a dinosaur and a giant bear, but at the same time, he also looks sad and helpless in the quicksand. Next, you, you kind of feel sorry for him because Denim took his assumed father and ultimately got him killed, leaving this kid all alone. But then you, you know, he sometimes he gets, uh, you know, kind of dumped on his head whenever he's fighting the other creatures. So he's kind of getting knocked out, you know. Um, and, and lastly, you know, this movie ends with another dead Kong. Yeah, Son of Kong doesn't survive the movie. He saves Denim from dying uh, and ultimately sacrifices himself in order to do it. It does leave Denim stuff to think about at the end. He ponders if the baby Kong knew he was saving him. He then has to think about the predicament he left the baby in. So now, yes, the, the island was going to collapse no matter what, sure. But maybe the baby would have been able to float or swim away. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have been in the situation he was in where he was trapped. Um, but alas, maybe this kid wouldn't have made it in the world anyway. That wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch 
new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon at FilmSeizure.com, as well as uh, you can catch new episodes of Film Seizure on Wednesday mornings at FilmSeizure.com. Don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to Film Seizure to get uh, both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers, as well as YouTube. You can also check out my website, bmovieanima.com, to read new articles every Friday morning. Next time, we start a December of Universal Classic Monster sequels, and we kick things off with 1940's The Invisible Woman, starring Virginia Bruce, John Barrymore, and John Howard. So until next week, stay spooky.